The following podcast is banned in the state of Florida for talking about a dangerous leftist book, the Bible. Like the Bible, this podcast contains frank discussions on sensitive topics, including sex, violence, and cursing. Please proceed with caution. Doomed to those who pronounce wicked deeds and keep writing harmful laws, to deprive the needy of their rights and to rob the poor among my people of justice, to make widows their loot, to steal from orphans, What will you do on the day of punishment, when disaster comes from far away? To whom will you flee for help? Where will you stash your wealth? How will you avoid crouching among the prisoners and falling among the slain? Even so, God's anger hasn't turned away. God's hand is still extended. This is the Word in Black and Red. And welcome to The Word in Black and Red, where we read the Bible from a leftist and liberationist perspective to elucidate the way people of faith and their comrades can understand the Bible as a source of healing, love, and liberation for all people. I'm your host, Michael Belong, the wise old Lama Embi, joined today by the wonderful John and Don. I'm definitely not going to mess those names up. <laughs> John is a Methodist pastor in the United Methodist tradition in the United States, and Don is a pastor in the Reformed Church of America, ironically, not in America, because he's smarter than the rest of us and got out while he still could. Um, so, <laughs> so, we'll jump right into this weird and wonderful passage. Uh, a, a strange bit of scripture that you are not going to hear very many uh, podcasts about, but we wanted to bring you one um, to ensure that we had a different reading on this than just ignoring it entirely. Genesis 5 through 6, 4. This is the record of Adam's descendants. On the day God created humanity, God made them to resemble God and created them male and female. God blessed them and called them humanity on the day they were created. When Adam was 130 years old, he became the father of a son in his image, resembling him, and named him Seth. After Seth's birth, Adam lived 800 years. He had other sons and daughters. In all, Adam lived 930 years, and he died. When Seth was 105 years old, he became the father of Enosh. After the birth of Enosh, Seth lived 807 years, and he had other sons and daughters. In all, Seth lived 912 years, and he died. When Enosh was 90 years old, he became the father of Kenan. After Kenan's birth, Enosh lived 815 years, and he had other sons and daughters. In all, Enosh lived 905 years, and he died. When Kenan was 70 years old, he became the father of Mahalalal. After the birth of Mahalalal, Kenan lived 840 years, and he had other sons and daughters. In all, Kenan lived 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalal was 65 years old, he became the father of Jared. After Jared's birth, Mahalalal lived 830 years, and he had other sons and daughters. In all, Mahalalal lived 895 years, and he died. When Jared was 162 years old, he became the father of Enoch. After Enoch's birth, Jared lived 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. In all, Jared lived 962 years, and he died. When Enoch was 65 years old, he became the father of Methuselah. Enoch walked with God. After Methuselah's birth, Enoch lived 300 years, and he had other sons and daughters. In all, Enoch lived 365 years. Enoch walked with God and disappeared because God took him. When Methuselah was 187 years old, he became the father of Lamech. After Lamech's birth, Methuselah lived 782 years, and he had other sons and daughters. In all, Methuselah lived 969 years, and he died. 
When Lamech was 182 years old, he became the father of a son and named him Noah, saying, This one will give us relief from our hard work, from the pain in our hands, because of the fertile land that God cursed. After Noah's birth, Lamech lived 595 years, and he had other sons and daughters. In all, Lamech lived 777 years, and he died. When Noah was 500 years old, Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. When the number of people started to increase throughout the fertile land, daughters were born to them. The divine beings saw how beautiful these human women were, so they married the ones they chose. The Lord said, My breath will not remain in humans forever, because they are flesh. They will live 120 years. In those days, giants lived on the earth and also afterward, when divine beings and human daughters had sexual relations and gave birth to children. These were the ancient heroes, famous men. Now, this is just a weird passage. <laughs> we start off with this uh, genealogy of Adam, uh, where it goes through and it seems to completely forget that there's a whole other story that was told about Adam, that Adam and Eve left the garden and that all of this stuff happened and that Cain and Abel happened and everything that happened there. It just goes on and says, it, it restates creation. It's a whole new creation story that seems to be going in a different direction. What do you all make about this, this third creation story in five chapters? One of the things that gets me here, and I've got my uh, Robert Alters translation here, which I always shill for, even though I've never met the guy and I don't get paid for it, but my God, is it a good translation, so I'm a shill for it every time I can. I've got that one in front of me, and one of the things it notes here, particularly for the genealogy, is how this is formulaically and structurally different from the earlier creation stories. And one of the things we often forget when we're talking about the, uh, the Old Testament is that much like the Bible as a whole, much like the New Testament, this isn't just one story. This is a collection of different stories and documents that are put together. Uh, and what this is laid out as is this is laid out as more like official record keeping. So what it reads to me as is we had our narrative stories, and then this is basically like the birth certificate of creation. John, did you have any read on this? I think it is, you know, important in comparison later on to when we talk about the Nephilim that, you know, the whole record here is of basically a family genealogy. It is about family. That's the thing that stands out about them, not not achievements, not anything else about them until you get to Noah and this kind of little prophecy about what he'll do. Uh, so, I do want to affirm the priestly record uh, side of things being true, but then it's also a family story. Well, and it's set up so interesting. It's interesting that you bring that up where the story just before this is Cain and Abel, Cain killing Abel. And then it goes into this story and it almost acts as if Cain wasn't really a part of that story. Like Cain isn't a part of Adam's family. It just goes straight into Adam giving birth to Seth. One point that I think is important, and I think John got this pretty well too, is whenever we're reading the Bible, um, and in particular the Old Testament, I always... Personally, I like to suggest that we think of it in terms of two different ideologies existing side by side, the what and the why. So we talk about like the what of this being its ancient record keeping. It's the birth certificate of creation or whatever the hell you want to call it. But there's also the why of it, which is the family story. And that I, I had this conversation in a uh, podcast recording that went bad not too long ago. but. It's possible to hold both of these truths simultaneously without one or the other being more true. 
And this is something we fall into a lot, is thinking that one of these has to be true and the other doesn't. Like, it's just record-keeping or it's a family story. It can be and is both of those things simultaneously. And we do ourselves a disservice when we think it has to be one or the other. Well, and this strikes to me as... You know, a lot of these discussions of, especially our communist comrades who come in and and have a, a history of the Russian Revolution, like what is that? That's a family of comrades who end up uh, in tremendous violence against each other because of something that we don't really have defined within the own its own story, right? Why is there violence within our communist comrades? Well, because they lived in a country that was tremendously violent and oppressive to lots of people for thousands of years. And suddenly they're trying to reinvent society. It's not like they're going to reinvent it all at once, right? And the same thing, the same story can be told of almost every country in the world that we have lived under systems of violence. And so it is unsurprising if out of that violence, we see violence until we're able to establish something different. Which makes it all the more interesting how the violence inherent at the beginning of this story got edited out. Interesting. (laughs) Absolutely. In this third creation story, you don't see mention of that violence. Now, John, you mentioned that that there's almost nothing going on here in these genealogies until you get to uh, Noah, with the one exception being Enoch. Now, Y'all talk to me about Enoch, because there's a whole book of Enoch that uh, we don't talk about very often in the Bible, um, or that is in some people's Bibles and not others, (laughs) that plays a whole host of our modern narratives that is worth exploring. Yeah, Enoch is a strange exception, because, you know, it kind of still sounds like he dies, but at the same time, it kind of also sounds like uh, God takes him away. Uh, sequesters him somewhere, maybe heaven, depending on how we want to squeeze that into our tradition. I I think there's even later tradition kind of building on the idea that the only two people who never never die uh, a natural death are Enoch and Elijah, because Elijah's taken up to heaven. That leads to a lot of almost fan fiction later on in in later (laughs) tradition, like not just the book of Enoch per se, but there's uh, there's a whole like corpus of Enochian kind of fan fiction that builds around those ideas. Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, some other, I guess you'd call them apocrypha, aside from what's included in, I think, the Catholic and Orthodox Bible. So it's interesting, and we get nothing else <laughs> to really go <laughs> off from here. You know, I have, I have to say, as a, as a lifelong Star Trek fan, I have an invested love in people finding one detail that's slightly off and building an entire canon of fan fiction about it. It just, it <laughs> resonates with my heart. <laughs> but that, that said, one of the things that I love about this, and this is in the notes for Alter's translation, is when we say Enoch walked with God, the specific verb form used here for walk with is, is a reflexive form of the verb for to walk, and it's the exact same one that's used to describe God walking in the garden in the second creation story. Mm. And that... I, I present to you as if it clears something up or sheds some new information, but in fact, it just gives us a whole hell of a lot more questions, and I find that incredibly amusing. <laughs> well, and and you know, this is the this is the choice of a god who decides to descend to the earth to belong to creation, right? That that chooses to walk among us and be invested in it. And Enoch is here in this story performing the same job to God rather than the other way around. And it's one of the first times that we see humans being able to interact with God on God's own terms. And you don't see a lot of it throughout the rest of the Bible. But again, it comes back to this idea that our God 
is a very, for lack of a better word, a very human God, a very human-centric God, who doesn't necessarily see themselves as far and away above God, but instead as someone who delights in belonging among us. And I think that, you know, when, when Christian anarchists say, no king but Christ, it is reflecting this value, right? That we believe in a God who is not really above us. God is above us, obviously, but also desires to be equal with us, right? And that goes back to the open theism that my friend Derek was talking about in episode one, right? That God chooses to limit God's self. God chooses not to embrace all of their power at all times so that God can live among the rest of us. And that is a really good moral for those of us who have a lot of privilege, like me, who shows up as a white male dude in America. I have a lot of privilege, but if I desire to live in solidarity with my siblings around the world, I have to be willing to give that up or use that to build a world that is better for all of us, not just people who look like me or my family. Going off that too, I I will just mention one last thing about Enoch. Um, Yeah, it is a weakness in in the idea of patriarchy that Enoch isn't like the oldest and wisest person on this list, or if you equate wisdom with age, he's the one of the youngest ones um, when he dies on this list compared to Jared's 962 years and Methuselah's uh, 969. You'd assume that, you know, the oldest ones would be the most venerable and honored in a patriarchal worldview, but Enoch, a whippersnapper compared to the rest with just 365 years, he's the one that that walked with God and, and disappeared in this mysterious but supposedly really good and honorable way. So, it, it breaks the hierarchy just a little bit. There are lots of different theories on what the hell these ages are about, right? Um, and particularly because there's a there's just this one throwaway verse, let them not live more than 120 years, and then there's a genealogy afterwards where they still live for more than 120 years. <laughs> so what do we think the age has to do with here? Now, one theory that I've heard is that uh, this is supposed to be lunar years rather than uh, solar years. The trouble with that is that lunar years are just a couple of days or months short of a solar year. The other option is that perhaps when they say years, they just mean lunar cycle entirely. So maybe this is when Jared was 162 divided by 12. The trouble with that is that you end up with Enoch being like, five when he has this kid. Um, and so, <laughs> so what are the theories that y'all have? Well, I'll, th- I'll throw mine out here, mostly because it's probably going to be the, the most wacky pants crazy bullshit you've ever heard. This is actually one of the places where, where I tend to, one of the few places where I tend to lean towards the weirder rather than the more kind of logical interpretations of the Bible. I tend to think that these ages are somewhat, uh, plus or minus for counting systems of of antiquity, I tend to think they're somewhat accurate. And I'll explain to you the reason why before you just boot me off for being insane. (laughs) Um, I I look at it from a couple different directions. First off, understanding that while much of this was written down in roughly the Second Temple period, if not a hair earlier, the stories that were written down are oral histories that trace back to a level that we can't even track them. Like, as individual stories, we find written examples of them dating back almost to the onset of writing itself. And then, at that point, they were still oral histories that were being scribbled down. So we don't actually know how old these stories go. And setting aside the the, uh, intergenerational game of telephone that's involved with it, 
Uh, important stuff tends to be remembered with a vague degree of accuracy. Now, I'm going to go ahead and take off my pastor hat here and put on my entirely unearned scientist hat here. And this is where the theory goes a little bit crazy pants. Um, I have a number of friends and congregants who, assigned, who are in sciences and biologies, and I've knocked this about with them, and they say there's no reason it couldn't be true. But I tend to feel this way. And, and what it is, is when it comes to the science of aging, uh, a lot of it boils down to what are called telomeres, which are basically like uh, if you got a hoodie like these, you got those little metal caps on the end of them. And they basically sit on the end of our genetic structure. And over time, they wear down and the genes start to degrade and thus aging. Um, and it strikes me as a completely uninformed layperson that it's possible that, you know, genetically over generations, telomeres could have been longer and they could have degraded over time. And this would make sense if we're talking about a descent from a perfect creation imbued by God into whatever the hell this mess is. So telmeric degradation would make sense to me as a scientific explanation for why this might actually be the case. And I'm sure there are more logical explanations. And I know all of the literary arguments, like, yes, there's numerological reasons why they're all spaced apart this way and all that. But there's a part of me that likes to live into the mysticism of maybe this is a thing that happened. And there is a theoretical scientific explanation for how it could possibly be the case. So since I can't know anyway, I'm going to I'm going to say, yeah, maybe it is a little mystical and fun. And I like that. And that's really the only reason I take that. But that's my wacky pants theory. And just to be clear for the listener, you mean in terms of the logic of the story, not this literally happened 6,000 years ago. Yeah, I want to be very, very clear about that. When, I, when I'm talking about the idea of a creation as a literal experience, I do believe that, to borrow the, a phrase from the West Wing, before all that begatting, something begun. Like I, I do believe in some sort of divine origination. But that being said, 6,000 years is bullshit, and anyone who thinks that is insane. <laughs> science is here. Like, we have science for this. And I, you know, I see the oral histories as dating back maybe, you know, liberally 45 to 50,000 years, maybe a hair more, back to the time when we had Neanderthals and a few other things knocking around, which, hey, the existence of other versions of Homo sapien, that's a nice pivot to our next section here. Hint, hint, wink, wink, <laughs> nudge, nudge. That doesn't necessarily mean that it dates back the 4.5 billion years of the planet Earth or the multiple more billion years of the entirety of creation. Like, there's timescales here that don't mesh with a 6,000-year interpretation, and I will never, ever, ever be on board with saying, all of that's fake, fake news, fake science, it's 6,000 years, go God. Like, that's not how it works. I'm sorry, and you're ridiculous <laughs> to think so. <laughs> And literally until about 150 years ago, no one thought that. Like, 150 years ago is when the six-day creationist myth uh, began to find its way into the history. St. Augustine, from way back when, thought that with the best science of his time, that creation happened in one single day, and thought it was absolutely ridiculous that anyone would think that it took six days to happen. Um, so, <laughs> Schofield! Schofield! <clears throat> yeah, exactly. So, Schofield... If you don't know what the Schofield Reference Bible is, um, it's the project of a, of a nut job uh, who, <laughs> who basically misinterpreted most of the Bible in light of his own teachings to promote his view that Christ was coming back any day, and if you just buy my product, then you'll get to go with Jesus, which is definitely not a scam that has wildly influenced all of evangelicalism up to the modern day in any way, and in no way is the reason that f modern fundamentalism exists and upholds capitalism, rather than seeking to tear it down like we should should be in the in the spirit of Schofield. Let me go ahead and throw this out too. My my own podcast and uh, church are doing Bible studies on uh, Revelation. We're doing a podcast on the Left Behind series, and let me tell you, we have words about this motherfucker here. This guy <laughs> is not my friend. 
Oh, I this that guy is the reason that every time I was alone as a child, I was terrified that I had been left behind and the rapture had happened and everyone else had left and the left behind guys got it wrong and their clothes had gone with them. Yeah, our our editor is also nodding their head. So like this was deeply traumatizing to a lot of us and Schofield, I don't think anybody stays in hell for very long, but Schofield does. Look, I'm going to go ahead and utter a sentence here that has probably never really been uttered on any sort of religious media before, but I'm going to say it anyway. Cyrus Ingersoll Schofield is the reason why I couldn't go watch the Beavis and Butthead movie. <laughs> Let's not unpack that at all. <laughs> exactly. The deep cuts. <laughs> John was just nodding along, so I'm assuming that he was also traumatized. Yeah, Left Behind series was horrific uh, for my childhood, too. So this is the preview of uh, when we eventually do Revelation on this uh, on this podcast. So, um, yeah. <laughs> anyway, we will do it because Revelations is my favorite book of the Bible, and we're, we're really only doing Genesis so that I have an excuse to talk about Revelations later. In response to Don's conversation about, you know, these being literal times, I think that it is perfectly reasonable that if you say that creation was originally perfect, that it makes sense that people would have lived less long uh, the farther away we got from that perfection. I think that our reading of this story leads us to believe that it wasn't perfect, that God had made a mistake in the beginning. And when we go into this next story of Noah, we'll see that God regrets their mistake having been made. And so, I think that this is really just a telling of the way that these people were famous men, the the way that these people lived these super long lives, and so are important to a Jewish self-understanding of the ancient Israelites, but are not ultimately trying to say that life was perfect then and it got worse, um, because we see in this prophecy that Noah is the one who's supposed to come and relieve the pain of the curse that happened after the fall, that it was incredibly hard to produce food after the fall, and that Noah is the one who's supposed to bring bring us out of this. You know, one, one other ancient piece of literature that I'd actually like to compare to this is um, Homer's Iliad. And there's a section in there where he just kind of coldly uh, lists all of those who die in the Trojan War, it kind of as uh, just and like gives a very brief uh, relation of like, here's this name, here's what they did, here's how they died. And it just repeats for a long section. And um, as you mentioned, uh, if we bookend this whole series, this whole list of fathers and sons and their ages and everything with everything going horribly wrong in the second creation story and then this third new creation story about to start this could be seen as like uh this recitation of these men who had horrifically long lives of hard labor during this time of um when the ground was cursed yeah that's just a relation that popped up in my mind as as don was talking about the potential literary implications of this I'm going to throw this in here from Alter's notes as well, where he notes that in, in verse 29, we talk about Noah's name as being, this one will console us for the, for the pain of our hands. Uh, and an interesting thing that, that Alter notes here is that the word here, Itzavang, only occurs three times in the Bible. The first time being for Eve with respect to the pain of childbirth. The second time being for Adam with respect to the pain of working the land. And the third time being with Noah. So when we talk about literary implications, there's a very clear linguistic through line that's being drawn here all the way from Adam all the way to Noah, and that immediately gets sidetracked by weird angel giants. 
Yeah, so that that phrase is super interesting that it, it ties these different uh, stories together as the same kind of struggle. We see that uh, Eve is suddenly struggling with childbirth and alongside that, which we talked about in another episode with Snorkel, that childbirth became more difficult as we entered into an agricultural society because we were more likely to be able to keep children alive, but it was harder to actually give birth. And so you have that trade-off within their society. It became harder for Eve to give birth, and Adam suddenly had to toil a lot harder. In a hunter-gatherer society, it's a lot easier to go out and just get the things that you need when you need them, versus when we turn into an agricultural society, and suddenly you're working all the time. I'm a gardener, I know, it's all the time to be able to keep your food, to make your food grow well and grow healthily. And so we had these transitions of difficulty as we go through these different cycles. And now we see that Noah is supposed to be the person who brings us out of that. John, you want to talk a little bit more about how Noah takes us out of this and connect it to the Nephilim? Yeah, so uh, I guess the story of the Nephilim uh, is kind of this this transition point where, um, you know, it's like a high point that moves between that time of hard work and incredible labor into this new age that uh, comes through Noah's time. And I, I suppose going back to what Snorkel might mention as far as uh, hunter-gatherer society versus a farming society, we see warfare, at least explicit signs of warfare, rise a lot more as we get into an agricultural society. And that could be reflected in, you know, this is the time of great heroes. They lead all the wars. This is when the wars happen. So it could be a reflection of that even. It's strange, this this concept of the Nephilim, uh, again, is related to that, that vague reference of Enoch. In the Book of Enoch, we see Nephilim really fully advanced and really brought forward as, as this strange like subclass of demigods that are just below the angels. And in the Book of Enoch, the angels take on a lot more godlike qualities. Uh, most of the concept of angels that we have today in the West comes out of the Book of Enoch more than any book in, in the Bible. But the Book of Enoch still deeply influences all of our concepts of angels and demons in the West. So Noah is supposed to be the salvation from from seemingly these uh, this this terrible oppression that is combined in with these strange beings, the Nephilim. Now these divine beings see how beautiful the human women are and married the ones they chose, and the result are these strange giants. Don, can you tell me a little bit more about the Nephilim, these strange giants that are moving around? What I've got on the word itself comes from the altar translation, and it. It kind of points out that the, the, the more obvious reading of Nephilim is, is a Hebrew term that means fallen ones, but uh, Alter suggests that the word might have a non-Hebraic background and could be a loan word from another nearby culture. So finding a specific meaning for the word is problematic linguistically at best. Yeah, it's, it's weird. The only thing I was going to mention aside from that basically was um, I saw one thing in my research this week that it Maybe it means like those who fall upon others, like fall upon them to do violence, like uh, uh, Abraham does when he saves his nephew Lot. He yeah. uses that verb "fall," but yeah, it's still very weird, very mysterious. Yeah, uh, pretty much every take on understanding Nephilim as a Hebrew word have to do with connecting it to the root of "fall" somehow. Like I said, alter alter connects it to fallen ones, maybe, 
Uh, I personally tend to side with Alter on this one where, where he says that it could very well be a non-Hebraic origin word and a loan word from another culture. And I think that makes, considering what we're talking about and the, you know, even if you don't take the mystical buy-in as to what Nephilim actually were, they're clearly something that involves something from outside the tribe. I think the idea of this is a loan word makes a hell of a lot more sense. Yeah, and I, I agree with that concept. I think that this goes back to John Collins' interpretation of Genesis 1, where the Nephilim are related to, in related cultures, to these rebellious giants who fight against the old gods, and the old gods have to tear them apart to be able to rule the world, basically. And so, that picture that Ephemeral showed of a literal giant, like half of the earth-sized being, um, might fit into that <laughs> that image. And so, here, the story uh, of the Jewish people, they're trying to tell ancient Israelites are trying to incorporate this story in and say, yes, we acknowledge that there are Nephilim, that there were these fallen giants, but actually they fit into our story in this way, and they were defeated because they're the ones who caused all this chaos. They're, they're somehow corrupting humanity, helped lead to the flood. And what's interesting about that interpretation is that the Nephilim are, uh, are this strange amalgamation of demigods that need to be defeated, but also are perpetuating the violence that's already happening in this story and seem to be responsible for the flood. Now, that's not to say that humanity was not already doing the violence, but... <laughs> I think it's interesting for us to take a detour into the Midrash, which for those of you who are unfamiliar with what Midrash is, it's the, the ancient Jewish backstory. It's, uh, you know, Catholic liturgical secondary canon, just many, many, many thousands of years older. And this is this one that I'm reading from, which I mentioned earlier, the, uh, the Legends of the Jews, was suggested to me in seminary by a, a Jewish rabbi who came to lecture us on a lot of Zoti stuff. So I'm going to read, actually, for you guys the section here that kind of highlights how the Midrash saw the, the fallen angels and the Nephilim. So this is from a section called The, the Fall of the Angels. Uh, the depravity of mankind, which began to show itself in the time of Enosh, had increased monstrously in the time of his grandson, Jared by reason of the fallen angels. When the angels saw the beautiful, attractive daughters of men, they lusted after them and spoke, we will choose wives for ourselves only from among the daughters of men and beget children with them. Their chief, Shemhazi, said, I fear me, you will not put this plan of yours into execution, and I alone shall have to suffer the consequences of great sin. Then they answered him, well, I'll swear, other stuff happened. Uh, 200 angels descended to the, to the summit of Mount Hermon, which owes its name to this very occurrence because they bound themselves there to fulfill their purpose. Under the leadership of 20 captains, they defiled themselves with the daughters of men. So right there, this is a lot stronger than the Bible says, but this is where it gets interesting. They defiled themselves with the daughters of men, unto whom they taught charms conjuring formulas how to cut roots in the efficacy of plants. Oh, so that's where witches came from. <laughs> well, witches and farmers, apparently. <laughs> yeah, like... <laughs> right. And, th and then, it, like, it's not done. The, the issue from these mixed marriages was a race of giants, 3,000 elves tall, who consumed the possessions of men. When all had vanished, they could obtain nothing more from them. The giants turned against men and devoured many of them, and the remnant of men began to trespass against the birds, beasts, reptiles, and fishes, eating their flesh and drinking their blood. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I have seen the one Russell Crowe movie that I actually enjoy, which is the movie Noah. And I know, I know a lot of people get you know, heap hate on that one for being overdramatic. It's a movie that's going to happen. But, like, some of the things that it draws upon, and I really draw people's attention to this, is it draws upon midrash like this for 
all of its extra details, including the idea that all the ones not saved by the flood were meat eaters while no one and his descendants remained vegetarians. Like, all of these pieces that we kind of either traditionally or because we like Russell Crowe movies draw from this section of the Bible uh, come from this sort of thing. And, uh, like, I'm not going to read the whole Midrash for you. We'll be here for another hour. But we get things like, you know, the fallen angel Azazel then teaches men how to make arms, shields, coats of mail. Like, all of this introduction of the Nephilim was, at least in that chunk of the Jewish tradition, the origin, or, or at least an artifact of the origin of all that kind of goes wrong leading up to Noah. So for us who kind of take the Sola Scriptura approach, like just in the Bible, we're like, huh, the fuck's a Nephilim? But for the rest of everybody else who, who kind of take all the backstory into it, they're like, this is, you know, blinking text on screen that reads epic foreshadowing, because this is the, the, like, the first side effect we see of things going monstrously wrong for the human race, at least according to this traditional part of the story. Now, the question of whether we take this literally or not, uh, I don't know. Like, I do <laughs> tend to believe there are things greater than science and that there are interactions between the divine and the mystical in the real world all the time, and that, you know, by being too logical and scientific about the world, we can lose some of the magic that still exists in creation. I do tend to believe that. But also, like, fallen angels and giants and shit, like, maybe not. Like, there's probably some <laughs> sort of middle ground to this. As to what that is, I haven't the foggiest damn clue. I'm not an I'm not much more of an archaeologist than seminary trained me to be, and even if I was, I don't think archaeologists can even figure this shit out. Uh, we'll just say it was <laughs> weird and move on. Well, and and what I love about that interpretation is that it ties in this small detail in the flood story that is often overlooked. Um, the Noahic covenant is in Judaism the covenant that God makes with all of humanity. As long as you don't eat. Uh, animal's blood, you're fine, basically, is the covenant that God makes with all of humanity. And a lot of uh, Jewish denominations take that if you are not Jewish, that is the only covenant that you have to keep. Don't murder people and don't don't drink blood. And that goes back to this idea that blood is the ultimate life force of a thing and that violence under undertakes that, that it eliminates that. And so here we see the, uh, the, the Nephilim in this Midrash are taking this life away from humanity and thus making humanity less living than they could be otherwise, less fully human than they could be otherwise because they're consuming the blood of other things. They're taking the blood away and the life force away from other things and thus depleting it from themselves as well. And that relates to the way that capitalism oppresses all of us that John made a beautiful analogy to in our Noah episode. Now, Dear listener, you listen to these things in order. We record these things whenever we can get people. And so you don't know that John is going to go on the great rant about this in the flood episode uh, that we are expanding upon here. But uh, John, go ahead and and give us this this connection that you have made. Yeah, there, there's a great parallel here between kind of lifting up these heroes in this ancient time, these, these great men of renown who are the Nephilim and... Uh, you know, our great man history that we're taught today and that has been so prevalent for generations now that uh, the world turns on, you know, the captains of industry, the great leaders, the great uh, thinkers, you know, nothing happens from the people up. It's always oh, one great mind, one great powerful person who changes things. I, I love this because it feels like such a great pushback almost in the scripture to to mention these guys, say, the Nephilim were great heroes. They were wonderful. 
Now on to more important things. We're not going to name a single one. <laughs> really, really just takes the power out of them. Like not even worth mentioning beyond that. The one thing I would also say is that plays really well with the with the the midrash take on it too, because the nephilim are expanded upon a bit there as the introducers of industry and thereby capitalism. So like. Right here, the idea of them being heroes is tied to the idea of them introducing these kind of combative systems of labor and development that hadn't historically until this point existed. And the one thing that, as we watch, pulls humanity regularly away from the more communal style living that we were always supposed to have in the first place in the garden. Ah! Sorry, frustrated. Um, but in any point, at any point, like this all kind of meshes together in very interesting ways. And I love it. And screw capitalism. Anyway, continue. I have used capitalism very liberally and uh, pardon the pun there. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and one of the pieces of feedback that I got was, well, you really shouldn't say capitalism. You should say imperialism because capitalism is, again, an invention that is only a couple of hundred years old and is the rebranding of imperialism, right? The Nephilim don't introduce capitalism. You know, markets have always existed where people have traded goods and have traded things among communities and everything. But capitalism has not always existed. Imperialism is introduced here with the Nephilim. I'm going to, to try to be as, as liberal and as kind as I can. You say that capitalism is the rebranding of imperialism, and we all know that when someone changes their name and their identity, we need to respect that. So I'm going to keep calling it capitalism because that's what imperialism <laughs> identifies as these days. And you know what? I'm not going to dead name capitalism. It is what it is. <laughs> I stand corrected. I apologize to capitalism. John? <laughs> I don't know if this is going in a totally different direction then, but uh, I was just going to mention that, um, you know, capitalism wasn't necessarily, you know, an invention because that almost goes back to the great man thinking of like, oh, Adam Smith invented this thing called capitalism. It was a system he proposed and everyone adopted. But um, capitalism is actually something Marx came up with as a description of what he saw. Uh, mm. It's an observational um, definition. It's not something that uh, came fully formed out of someone's head and imposed upon the world. So when we do talk about abusive systems of labor, um, systems of uh, a market economy that uh, relies on the exploitation of labor, uh, that, that can more or less be applied back further in time before Adam Smith and um, before other economists started using words like capitalism, aside from Marx. So I think when we talk about, and especially going back to Don's point about Midrash, and when the Midrash especially started coming together uh, under imperial rule of the Greeks, and then later of the Romans, you know, this is a, a brutal time when, uh, you know, taxes were more or less just plunder, uh, land capture was happening. The the jubilee year was not celebrated. People were in, living in debt and became debt slaves. It was a, a proto-capitalism. So I think it's fair to say that and to critique that and to lift those critiques out of their tradition as well. It's not as if taxes is, are not plunder today either. Uh, they are a means of keeping inflation down, which means taking the pool, the, the pile of money that currently exists, and making sure as much of it goes to the wealthy as possible, and as little of it goes to the rest of us. I will, I will also go ahead and throw it out there, too. Um, you know, we talk about that, you know, we, we don't want a dead name capitalism. It used to be known as imperialism. But before it was known as imperialism, it was just simply known as exploitation. So, like, it's got a history there. 
And it goes back to what John was originally saying was that there is this cycle, right? The Nephilim in this story begin this cycle of exploitation that uh, that goes and conquers each other, right? Cain kills Abel, that starts the cycle of violence. Then the Nephilim enter into this system and begin to teach us all these other things. They teach us how to make war. They teach us how to make industry. They teach us all of these things that allow us to kill each other more effectively. And so when we go to that next story where God regrets having made humanity, it is because these great people of history, these great, um, what are we talking about when we say that? We meet, we're saying great men of history who go out and murder each other, that the Bible does not find the time to even name because they are pointless in salvation history. They are not the people who are important here. Instead, it is about the cycle of redemption that really matters here in this story. It's the rest of us. It's the poor who are lifted up, and it is Noah who brings liberation to the people who is named, not all of those other people. One of the, the points you, you kind of dance over there, too, that I think we really should should be aware of is the idea that these systems of exploitation that are introduced here, they're not something entirely new being introduced. Uh, we talk about the broader arc of sin, which I know is a, is a difficult word for a lot of people, and for good reason. Um, but the broader arc of sin as a force through the Bible, you know, we, we get it with the, the original sin, which is a whole other discussion, which, oh boy. Uh, oh boy. Anyway, but we talk about the first murder as the introduction of violence into the system. And then here we have the introduction of exploitation into the system. And sometimes we tend to think of that as this is a new type of thing that's being introduced, when in fact what this is, is an evolution of violence, which is an expanding sin that expands generation to generation down through temporal causality as sin does. And so now we have violence has evolved into a new type of violence, which is exploitation. The original violence of murder was a one and done sort of thing. You killed someone and it was over with and you did a, you did a bad. Now we have a new type of violence that can endure throughout a person's lifetime. And things have gotten worse as a result of that. And sin evolves. Compare the, the exploitation of labor in those days with uh, the fact that Arkansas just repealed child labor laws, and we start to see how that evolution has continued. Well, and and it's worth talking about the fact that a lot of the conception in the Bible of sin, right, we're really talking about like four different things when we're talking about sin. There are sins that just make you unclean, like not washing your hands after a meal. That makes you unclean. Sometimes we say that falls under the concept of sin, that's not really the same kind of sin that we're talking about. There are sins that uh, there are sins that you can commit just against your neighbor that aren't necessarily sins against God, right? Things that you can do like not mowing your lawn that offends your neighbor, right? When you when you told them you were going to mow it and then you don't do it, that's a sin against your neighbor that isn't a sin in in the big S qualification, right? But then there's sin that is sin and death, which are partners that are the same thing throughout the Bible, this concept of sin and death and violence all wrapped up in one another that are that are presented as a power, as a being, as something that exists in the world that has movement, that when we participate in violence and death, we participate in that thing that is the opposite of participating in God. And that sort of different understanding that sin and death that we see in Romans that Christ has overcome, we see here in this story that's about to happen, God overcoming by eliminating the world that has become 
and restarting it in this next story. So we'll talk a lot more about sin and death as a being or as a force in the world uh, throughout the rest of this podcast. But sin and death and violence is a being that has another name that, uh, you know, was dead named as exploitation and imperialism that today is known as capitalism. Any system that seeks to use violence and oppression to perpetuate itself is participating in sin. And so, that is why we as Christians, as people who believe that Christ has already come and conquered those things, cannot participate or should not participate as much as we are able with systems of death like capitalism today. There's one one last uh, piece of this uh, of these verses we're looking at that just continues to stand out to me is um, that the Nephilim were around in that time and then also afterwards, like the flood doesn't do away with them. They're still the great heroes who are trying to rule the world and do that through violence, which gets back to what you were just saying. And uh, yeah, the struggle isn't over. It didn't end with the flood. I will throw out a note of caution here because I have... Uh, as one of those guys who, who unfortunately runs in evangelical circles as well, which I got to tell you, really good thing to do for my mental health. One of the ways I've seen this train of logic derail is if the Nephilim are the great heroes and the, the doers of evil and yada, 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 then that makes it immediately possible to dehumanize the villains we see today as, oh, that's not really a human thing. That's just a Nephilim thing. And I had like that seems wacky to us more logical folk, but I have seen people take that train to its logical conclusion and then blow into the station at 100 miles an hour and kill everybody. And that is something we do want to be careful of, because when we start talking about these extra human influences, whether we talk about sin as an outside force, whether we talk about the Nephilim, angels, demons, Satan with his pitchfork and the lake of all this other stuff that, you know, Schofield, um, (laughs) you know, the more we talk about those things. Uh, the easier it is for us to forget to attribute as human the evils we see in the world around us. And I do want us to be careful about that because the call isn't coming from outside the house, y'all. Okay, for those of you who were born after 1994, that's a scream <laughs> reference, by the way. Um, but yeah, like that is inherent in us. Um, and you can look at that either, either as a normal thing or the fact that the Nephilim continue to crossbreed. So all of us are a little bit Nephilim these days, whatever way you want to look at it. It's part of us, too, and we don't want to forget that. Yeah, and just to riff off that, maybe a potential part two to the story is uh, Goliath, the giant, and mm-hmm. how, you know, that whole idea that we're kind of the Nephilim, too, now is uh, when David kills Goliath, he, he keeps that armor. He takes it with him. Like, uh, he thinks he's going to grow into it, and we, we know he commits pretty heinous crimes later uh, in his life. So, yeah, we, we take some of that giant with us, unfortunately. And I think that's a a great way to say that the rich and the powerful of this world are just human beings like us. People with names and addresses, but also people who deserve to be treated like the rest of us. They deserve to have a a good life where they are able to do fulfilling things and be healthy and happy and have people who love them, but not anything else. They're not entitled to ruining life for the rest of us so that they can have those things. And so, like other human beings, we need to treat them just like everybody else, not anything extra special, and not see them as Nephilim, as different from us, but fundamentally the same, who deserve the exact same as us, not more and not less. And with that, friends, we will say thank you so much, John and Don, for being here on the show. I so appreciate your perspectives, and I look forward to many, many more episodes with y'all. 
If you're interested in discussing this episode, religion, or general leftism, please join our Discord channel found in the show notes. We host a Bible study every Friday at 12-ish p.m. Eastern Time to discuss this week's episode. If you're interested in supporting the show, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash the word in black and red. Your support helps me pay our amazing editor and relieves my guilty conscience of exploiting someone's free labor. If you would like to appear on the show or reach us for any reason, you can reach us at the word in black and red at gmail.com. Now, future Micah, say the profound shit. And thank you, past Micah, for passing it along. Listener, may you live a life so blessed that your comrades will say of you, God has taken them up. Shalom. Elon Musk is a Nephilim, yo!